In this episode we talk to Matthias Distelman, CEO of Brands Fashion and his colleague and sustainability manager Rubea Schaffrik. Brands Fashion is a German supplier of workwear and promotional clothing. And this episode is as perhaps you have guessed in English. Brands Fashion has managed to get the elusive cradle to cradle certification. And in this episode we talk about how they managed to do that and what big companies are looking for in a supplier of workwear, among other things. An honor to have them both on the show and to learn more about the operations of a big German supplier. I hope you will enjoy this conversation, even though Matthias' sound is sometimes, unfortunately, a bit sketchy. Great honor to have you with us to talk more about uh, Brands Fashion as a large European supplier of workwear and promotional clothing and about uh, the journey towards uh, sustainability that you have uh, embarked upon and in many ways gotten quite far on. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, the, the, the honor is likewise. So uh, we are very excited, of course, uh, being part of the show. And it is kind of a premiere for me, at least. I think Rabea has been on some kind of podcast already before, but for me it's the first time. So I hope I'm allowed to make some beginner's mistakes here and um, that we maneuver quite smoothly through it. Yes, of course. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. We could uh, start with you telling a bit uh, more about uh, Brands Fashion, perhaps a quick background, where are you based, key products and markets and the size of the company and so on. Yeah, who is Brands Fashion? Uh, Brands Fashion is located in Germany in a city called Buchholz, which is in close proximity to Hamburg. Uh, so in the northern part of Germany, very close to the largest seaport in Germany. Um, we are Europe's market leader in sustainable corporate fashion and fan merchandising, especially the fan merchandising for first and second division soccer clubs. We are selling approximately 12 million pieces of clothing every year. Our major market is Germany, but of course we also have some connection into other parts of Europe. 70% of our goods are already certified to certain criteria, so we are strong with credit cradle, we are strong in gods and fair trade. In order to enhance our sales capabilities, we have uh, opened an office in the United States three years ago. We have moved over to the U.S. with uh, some of our European customers. Right now, of course, also struggling in the U.S. a little bit, also because of the uh, economical dim, which is happening all over the world. But other than that, um, also in the U.S., it's kind of a success story. Also there, we are promoting uh, social green fashion, uh, which is new to this uh, large uh, United States market. As a new enhancement to our group, we have uh, a platform provider called Goyungo, where we are bringing brands on platforms and doing all their logistical fulfillment also. So in our warehouses, which have uh, roughly 35,000 square meters at three locations in Germany, we're packing approximately every year 500,000 parcels to be sent through Germany. Yeah, with Goyungo, we try, of course, mainly to, to link green labels to uh, platforms. If these labels are not green yet, uh, we try to convince them to go into more greener productions together with us. So this is, this is let's say, the business model which uh, Goyungo and Brands Fashion have, uh, have in common. That's basically Brands Fashion. Okay, you were talking about football clothing to the fans. Yeah, so that and merchandising. Okay, and uh, that was a large part of your business? 
Well, the larger part of our business is, of course, corporate fashion, but it's a, it's a minor part, but an increasing part. And we're very proud that last year the soccer clubs who, uh, who got their fan merchandise through us have been nominated as one of the most eco-friendly fan merchandise productions. And um, this has happened in a unit which we are working with strongly in India. And Rabea will tell you more about this green factory later in this podcast. And um, we are trying to find more soccer clubs also here willing to go the social green fashion way. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, area. And I suppose there are quite a lot of football clubs in uh, in Germany in different leagues and so on. It is increasing. It is increasing. And it is, it is as everything, every disruption of the economy is difficult and poses its own difficulties. But um, this is how it is. And it is increasing. We are, of course, looking very much forward also to internationalize this. So there are also interested soccer clubs, let's say, in Spain, Italy, or in the UK. Yeah. And um, this is what the future might bring. Presently, we are predominantly active uh, in Germany in the first and second division. So what is the most common uh, product that you sell? The product group is knitwear, which, is, which we are very, very strong in, and uh, cotton knitwear, obviously, yeah. which we are doing out of India. And this is, I would say, from a single perspective, the largest product group we have. Yeah. Um, of course, we also do jackets and pants and, and uh, whatever remains and falls into the category of clothing. We also do shoes, but uh, individually looked at, it is it is knitwear. All right, that's a good background. One of the many good reasons that we are talking to each other today is that you have managed to to get the elusive cradle to cradle certification on some of your clothing. Could you please explain what this certification means and uh, talk a little bit about the process behind reaching this milestone? Yes, indeed. Um, we started the certification process in 2019 and it took us one year to get four products certified, which were a t-shirt, a polo shirt, a hoodie and a community mask. So one year is quite a time, but for Cradle to Cradle, it's pretty quick, you could yeah. say. <laughs> um, it takes a lot of work to look at the product, the input for the product and also the supply chain. So As Matthias said, we're doing a lot of organic textiles already. We're working with the Global Organic Textile Standard a lot. And it's one of the strictest standards we have in the textile industry. And they are looking on the text, on the chemicals used in the industry already. So they have quite strict requirements, what kind of chemicals are allowed to use in production. But Cradle to Cradle goes one step further. And the basic idea of Cradle to Cradle is to design products for second life. So no end of life in the cradle-to-cradle world. There is, there is no such thing as waste. You're always creating circular systems and they work in five areas. Two of them are material health and recyclability. So for the material health, the chemicals used in the products are really broken down into their smallest components. And we had to check on every component component of every chemical. So for dye stuff, for printing paste, for process chemicals, and you need a lot of chemicals in the textile industry. So we had to check on, on those and check on their ecotoxic effects and then replace some of them, which took some time. That was one, one big challenge we had. And then for the recyclability, as said, we use a lot of cotton products. So Cotton fiber is a natural fiber already, so that's easy to, to biodegrade. 
But when it comes to our kind of accessories or trims like buttons, zippers, whatever, they are made of metals or plastic and those are not so easy to biodegrade. So that's something we're still working on. So at the moment we have really basic, basic cradle to cradle collection and we have now an internal task force which just pushes the, the further development of uh, more products. So we can then also offer like polo shirts with buttons or sweat jacket with a, with a zipper on it. But that's still in progress. What are some kind of the materials that you look at to perhaps make buttons in the future? What is, could we use instead of plastic and uh, metal? Yeah, there is um, recyclable plastic we could think of. But at the moment, we're looking at uh, buttons made of recycled cotton. So we really have a cotton product, pure cotton product at the end. But there, with Cradle to Cradle, the challenge is that there are not so many suppliers available providing certified material. So we have to do a lot of development work here. So we're really starting from the beginning, uh, looking for suppliers who are willing to cooperate with us on this and invest the extra work that is necessary and uh, yeah, that is just very time intensive. Yeah, I understand. So what does it mean for this clothing piece that has this uh, certification? Like if I get tired of it, what do I do with it? Yeah, so um, as I said, Cradle to Cradle is um, designed to be to be circular in the end. So our Cradle to Cradle collection is now designed for the biological circle, which means they are biodegradable. So you can just throw them into the landfill and they will become soil, basically. There will be no harmful effect on the environment because everything what's what's in there is non-toxic because we only use positive chemicals. They will not biodegrade while wearing them or while having them <laughs> in the closet. But yeah, of course, you need certain circumstances like temperature, humidity, etc. Yeah. But then um, they will just disappear and become earth again let's say like that and also so those are the requirements for the product but also for the supply chain there are several requirements like that the supply chain needs to have proper wastewater management that they have to reuse the wastewater in production and that they have uh, to use renewable energies so in our supply chain it's solar energy used and that also strict social standards have to be fulfilled you could say it's a sustainable product in all kind of ways you could look at it yeah that is quite a feat a really fantastic thing and i mean if we should get philosophical about this this is what uh, mother earth does right she always makes uh, everything go around and then come back to the source and whatever there is no waste no spill no pollution and for us humans to start thinking in this way and start to creating things that live up to these highest of standards, it's really fantastic. And I mean, probably in, in 20 or 30 or 40 years, hopefully a lot of the things we create will live up to this. So really good job. You said you started this in uh, 2019 and, and you, you pretty much did it in like a year or so, which is quite fast, I think, to find all these solutions that is needed. But when did you start to think about this, that we would like to do this and, and what was the like trigger and how did the process start? We started also in 2019. Uh, we are always pretty quick yeah. with our <laughs> decisions um, and ideas. And I think the idea was we see ourselves kind of as pioneer company in this whole area of sustainable textiles. 
So we were successful with GOTS and Fairtrade certified textiles already and also using recycled polyester. But Cradle to Rail was just the next step. So I was taking a look, what is there, which is even more sustainable? What can we do better? And then Cradle to Cradle was really like the gold standard there is on the market at the moment. So we were thinking, okay, let's try this. Let's see what is what can we have out of it, the added value. And maybe Otis can say more about it, but our customers are quite positive about it. Yeah. yeah. So it gives a good feedback from their side. Perfect. Because yeah. uh, we can get into that right away. That was my next question. How has the market reacted and how has it been received that you now can offer these products? Well, you just put it very nice in words, David, and that is basically the core argument that uh, we are taking resources from Mother Earth. Mother Earth does not need us, but Mother Earth is the perfect closed-loop scenario you can think of. And right now we are in a kind of an assembly line economy. So where we take something out, we assemble something, and then later on it, is, it becomes waste. And uh, like Rabia said, in 2019, we thought, how can we change this? How can we disrupt this? And how can we become more circular? Because that's basically a marathon and not a sprint. So we started with Cradle to Cradle, which is very good at the beginning, and it will also enhance further. And we have proposed this to various of our customers. And here again, it's also not everyone, of course, jumping on it. Some need a proof of concept. Some are just followers. They would say, oh, come again in one year. We look at it. But there are a few customers, soccer clubs, also retailing companies, who are jumping on it, who are trying it. And then I believe success is the best proof of concept. So if they see that finally, oh, the polo shirt is not degrading on my body while I wear it and there is no minor or inferior quality to it but it is just something that after I wore it after the first life of this product that gone is gone it can be, it'll get a second life uh, and in future maybe and that is what I'm thinking about and I don't want to think 20 30 years ahead I want to think five ten years ahead the second life is even better because then these resources can be used for another product and maybe another product so that we are saving resources then we will have a very very positive aspect on climate change and with all this together combined and talking to customers one after the other like a domino um, they will fall and they will jump on it i'm 100 convinced on that that's wonderful to hear and um for a lot of people i mean m money is still a, a really important thing and an important factor you don't always think only in terms of sustainability so like Let's say I want uh, a polo shirt that has this certification that I know I can feel good about. Are there a lot of difference in pricing between that and a so-called regular polo shirt? Does it cost a lot more to, to produce it? I believe my, my answer to this question has two sides. First, to answer your question uh, imminently is uh, to say, yes, of course, it is more costly. How much more? Uh, you could say maybe 10, 15 percent of the recent product value uh, is, is, has to be added on, onto it. But this is also very individual. One need to look at it. Um, how many accessories are there? Essentially, are the main cost drivers, for example, like Rabia already pointed out, zippers, buttons, embroideries. All this has to change. Sewing threads. Um, so a simple product, let's say, is 10 to 15 percent more expensive. Now coming to a price perspective, which I see more from an economical point of view. If today our only deal determinator is the price, yeah, then we will simply continue in our assembly line economy, will take resources out, will waste them for, for a single-use product, and will not do any good on climate change. So in my personal view, prices also have to be governed by regional, maybe even by international laws. Let's say products like ours who are going into a second life phase will have to have a certain 
yeah, tax discount or um, being easier to be brought into into our economy. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. But it's just interesting just to get a sense of like how much will this add uh, to the price. And I mean, ten to fifteen percent, you say on a basic clothing piece. For me, that sounds really cheap. And I mean, when you look at the younger generations, the millennials, and so on. I mean, the studies show that the big majority of them are willing to pay up towards forty percent more for a product that is sustainable. So I mean. 10 to 15 percent seems well within those boundaries exactly especially because we are not talking about any chances now to grow in this field because now cradle to cradle is a very small niche and i'm just, I'm just thinking that we could scale the effects up then maybe 10 to 15 percent is maybe five to ten percent in the future of course for some other products the, the markups are higher as i said we're talking about a basic product like a yep. basic t-shirt I think the acceptance level of a jacket, uh, which is then maybe not 10 to 15, but 20 to 30 percent more, uh, will reduce. And if I look at the consumption, let's say only in Germany, still a lot of consumers are talking about paying more for, uh, let's say, social green fashions, but too little are doing it yet. And I think that's basically where the cat chases its own tail. I believe we need governing laws in Germany or <laughs> internationally preferred Europe-wise. And to promote uh, greener products. Otherwise, it gets difficult. If the consumer at the end of the day is at, at the cashier uh, raising the decision, do I pay more or not? I'm not sure um, if everybody is really paying more. Yeah. Take Sweden, for example. We have this, I think this still is the case, but we have like some extra taxes on solar <laughs> panels. <laughs> and I mean, mm -hmm. that's pretty wrong way to put additional um, costs on people that try to like switch over to a more sustainable energy source. This environmental thinking, is it coming from bottom up or, or, or top down? I, I'm not sure. I think the consumers are a big driving force in this, some of them at least. So it's teamwork, I guess. It's teamwork, right? What, what motivates me the most is that it is technically possible. And we're not talking about science fiction and things which are not happening or cannot happen. It is technically possible. It is just that we have to, let, let's say, shape our markets to accept it finally. There are a lot of fast-moving pioneer uh, companies also whom we are selling these products to. But they are, let's say, not the biggest market niche yet. Um, they are still less than, than the other ones. Yeah. Hopefully, sooner or later, the others are following. That's that's basically the hope. But just what I put bottom line: this is possible. Change is possible. Yeah, completely agree. And when I said that, I was thinking more like in terms of EU and stuff. When the legislative part comes in, is it uh, the legislative that uh, jumps on the trend, or like are they starting the trend with setting new laws? I think they are catching up to what the, the companies and the consumers are doing, basically. Super exciting. And uh, a part of this, this is your uh, green factory. Could you tell me more about uh, this green factory? What, what does a green factory entail for brand fashion? Yes, uh, the green factory is one of our main suppliers in India. We're working with since several years. It was one of his big dreams. So really the dream of our supplier um, that he creates this green factory, he, how he always called it. And this now this production site is um, certified according to LEED Platinum Standard. And LEED is a, a building standard for environmental-friendly uh, resource-saving buildings. And basically, the idea is that you only use local, natural, uh, or recycled building materials 
for the building. And then also renewable energies. As I said, in our case, he has installed solar panels on his rooftop and 60% of his energy demand is covered by these um, solar panels now. Um, he uses LED lightning inside to reduce CO2 emissions. And then uh, he has um, modern machineries and uh, technologies also to save more energy on that. And then a part is that he collects rainwater and also recycles it to use it for the production. So it's going back into the production and then used there again. That's the idea of the green factory. Even the, the factory is looking a little bit uh, cradle to cradle, <laughs> where you can do it at least. Yeah, it, it helped us with the cradle to cradle certification because our supplier had this idea in mind uh, already before, before we came up with the cradle to cradle certification. But um, like you said, is it top down or coming from bottom? It's helpful if you have suppliers who have the same dream like we have. Because, of course, you need strong cooperations with your suppliers in order to achieve such things. Because it's challenging and you need a lot of uh, work and resources for that. And we have, luckily, a lot of suppliers who are going this way with us, the sustainable way. Um, and this Indian supplier is, yeah, as I said, one of our major suppliers. Is it a trend in India and other countries around there? Do you see others uh, making their factories greener as well? It's kind of a trend in a, in a certain way. What I like to add to Rabea is that no building had to be made for this green factory. We were sitting this on an existing building. So if this could become a more trend, this can happen to almost every factory building which there is in Asia. It is, it is of course, a matter of money. So how can an entrepreneur like our supplier earn money, pay them better prices for better products, and then they, these people are able to improve their facilities into a green and, and, and not harmful facility in this area. And yes, also in Bangladesh, there are some of these pioneers now uh, building green factories, certifying them uh, according to LEED standard. To the unfortunate, if, that's, if we see the complete picture out of 4,000 units in Bangladesh, there are maybe five, six, seven who are now doing this. So this is still a small thing. It is happening more and more. And what I can just underline is that the will is there. Um, but then also uh, importers like us, we have to pay fairer prices, better prices, help these people to improve their facilities. And that's exactly what we did with our maker in India. We are using 100% of his capacity. We are talking about every week about his capacity alignment. And we see where we, can we give him orders and maybe even when, what sometimes there is an order too much, so which does not have to add into an air freight or whatever. So we're really working very strategically with our maker. And if people would do this more and more, I believe that we can disrupt this economy. Yeah. You say it's a small trend down there or, or a few companies are doing it and more and more. And and I mean, if you look at like just, just the past two years, how it's changed when I talk to, to people in the Swedish industry, like what what their customers are asking for now and what their customers were asking for two years ago. It's, it's a complete different story. I mean, you can probably see from quarter to quarter demand for sustainable products are growing. It has only just begun. So it makes sense that uh, more units that can produce these kind of things will uh, be made from existing buildings, as you were saying. True, the, the trend is here on our side, but I can also understand, of course, these voices who would say that this is not yet enough because from a, from a, from a total perspective of garment production, 
and then it is just the beginning. But um, as I said earlier, um, the change is possible. Um, we have these tools at hand. We, we know how it needs to be done. It is a matter of will, not a matter of capabilities. And um, yeah, I'm hopeful that this trend will continue and also in other countries and there will be more move into social greener productions. Yeah. And I mean, uh, there are on many many fronts and levels. I, I wrote an article just yesterday about, you know, uh, the Swedish H&M and uh, IKEA. H&M is a retail store that is, uh, it's pretty huge. It's, it's, uh, it's global, I think. And uh, they together have started, just recently invested uh, like uh, 40 million euros in a new factory that will make clothing fibers from trees in the forest uh, in Sweden. They have tried it now on a very small scale for like a couple of years and now they will scale it up a little bit. And their uh, forecast is that uh, within a 10 year something like that, this could be 10% of all the textile fibers could come from from these sources instead on, in the long run. So, I mean, that's just another another front. And there we also have to be careful, of course, because, I mean, a lot of people have recently uh, figured out that the forest can be can be used to make uh, a lot of uh, sustainable products. So we have to, like, keep the balance in check there as well. And, and I mean, it's uh, we're figuring it out, right, uh, as we as we go along and make sure we don't put too much strain on on one single resource. It is also my understanding that you are supporting a European Supply Chain Act. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, indeed. Um and there is some progress in Germany, uh, finally, because there were a lot of discussions going on during the last month on a German uh, supply chain law. And now they finally agreed on a draft that still needs to be uh, formally uh, approved. But basically what the law is asking about, and that would be the same for a European uh, law, is that companies are asked to conduct due diligence on human rights and their supply chains. And um, it's based on the United Nations guiding principles for business and human rights. And the central tool is always a risk analysis. So you as a company are asked to identify potential risks in your supply chain for social and environmental standards, and then are asked to take adequate actions um, to reduce them, like what we do already, social auditing, environmental auditing, um, providing trainings for our suppliers, for workers and management, and other capacity buildings. So depending on what kind of risk you identify, you're asked to, to take these actions. And then you're also asked to report about it. So being transparent on what you do so other stakeholders can just take a look at it. But the draft now, the first phase only applies to companies with more than 3,000 employees. So we as a medium-sized company are not... Um, affected by it directly but still through our customers because of course we supply our goods to companies that are um, affected and they pass on the requirements of the law to us and that's logical because we're taking care of the supply chains as the importer so we have our responsibility in this value chain and we're pro the law because we just see Everything we do and all the efforts we're putting in, it requires a team. We have a known sustainability department. We need people on the ground taking care of that. And it, it needs money and resources to do that. 
and we see that others don't do the same. And what we need to work on is how you call it level playing field, that you have the same requirements for all companies in the market and that everyone has to take care of human rights in their supply chains. And obviously the last years have shown that not everyone is taking the responsibility. So now with the law, you just have same same conditions for everyone. And that's why we're supporting the law. Yeah. So it would mean that uh, like on a European level, you will have to be stricter with your investigation and monitoring and uh, changing things that doesn't work when you work with suppliers in other countries. You have to, to be stricter about how you check up on what they are doing and how does everything work and stuff like that. So from what the law is asking now, it's not very different to what we're doing already. So we have this process uh, uh, implemented already, but I think it will be easier for us to compete with others. And it's important that there will be a law on European level because for suppliers, if they get different requirements from different countries, let's say German companies ask for very strict requirements, it might be that they cut relationships with the German brands because they have other customers from other countries uh, not asking for such requirements. And that will just, we will suffer from that. And that shouldn't be the case. And it shouldn't be only German companies asking um, for such requirements. And there are other laws in other European countries already, but those just should be harmonized. And then uh, everyone plays according to the same rules, let's say like that. Okay. And another thing here is the EU, EU waste management law. Is, is, is those connected or is that something uh, else? Uh, I must admit, I'm, a, I'm not too familiar with these things, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not the same. <laughs> it's a separate law, yeah. which is uh, established already. It's also about the responsibility of companies producing waste. So you have to think of packaging for products, product packaging, but also for textiles which is a very interesting topic for us at the moment, because if you have worn out fabric textiles or fabrics or leftover production from brands not being sold, those are also considered as waste, especially if you're using material blendings and you cannot easily recycle them or they are not biodegradable, then you have to find ways to still recycle them. And this law is asking companies to think of a smart design in the beginning already yeah. for packaging, but also for textiles to ask for their responsibility in this story. So if you create smart packaging or smart textiles that can be recycled in the end, it has just a positive effect on the environment, of course. And then companies are also asked to take back the waste packaging or textiles and then find ways for sorting them and then a recycling scenario. So that's what the waste law is asking. Yeah. Was this quite recently implemented, this law? Or has it been around? Because I, I remember like two or three years ago, maybe maybe three or four years ago in Sweden, it was a huge story that we have a TV show called Uppdrag Granskning. And it's like the investigation uh, journalist uh, standard of Sweden. And and they had a, a show on, on how the retail uh, stores were like burning tons and tons and tons of clothes that they hadn't sell. And it was like a huge uh, outcry about this and so. But was the law in place then or, or maybe like in that uh, area that the law came about? 
I think still uh, part of it is still to come. So for the textile, so we're we're working uh, mostly based on the German law, yeah. which uh, will come in the next years for textile recycling. But at the end, there is already a European basis for it. Yeah. And I'm not sure how the different countries are implementing it already. But um, I think until 2024, it should be implemented in all European countries. All right. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about your presence in the Swedish and Nordic market. Do you have a presence here today? What the type of customers? And uh, are you also maybe looking to get more involved? As I'm sure you're aware, Nordic countries are quite eager on the sustainability front. Yeah, right now we don't have a, have a presence in, in, in Swedish uh, in the Swedish market or in the Nordic markets, uh, unless for companies who are having retail stores also in Sweden, some uh, food retailers we are working with. I'm unfortunately not allowed to name them, so I have to uh, um, yeah. Yeah, put it this way. But um, yeah, we didn't have a focus yet very much on the Swedish market, I must admit. That is for the pure fact that the um, German market, Austrian market, Swiss market is very large or very large markets. And um, when we moved over to the United States, our focus was in the United States also. And we are an SME, so um, we do not have uh, 1,000 employees here. It's uh, rather that we are 150 people and a day for us as well as 24 hours. So that's mainly the reason why we have not yet been looking into the Nordic markets. But of course, these are interesting markets for us and we would be very happy if uh, some uh, customers are interested to go with us uh, on Wheeler Productions. Yeah. You have some big, uh, big companies, I suppose, some customers that are like have presence in Germany and maybe other countries and so on. Like, could you talk a little bit about uh, what those kind of companies are looking for? What do they want from a partnership when when they are looking for clothing and stuff like that? I must say we're quite diverse at Brands Fashion, so we don't have we have a portfolio of totally different customers. So yeah. we are looking at every customer individually of his needs and and, and of his products and. If it makes um, mutual sense for both parties, then, of course, we are stepping into a business relation. So, on the one hand, we have large retailers with a couple of thousand stores over Europe, but uh, we also have smaller local retailers with few stores. So, um, it has to make both economical sense for, for both parties. And uh, if somebody is willing to uh, invest more money into greener products, then he's uh, right with us, but we are not the ones who are driving prices down. And we are just a cheap alternative for Tom, Dick and Harry. So that's not our business model. Yeah. So, yeah, as I said, we are very diverse and we are looking at every uh, relation individually. Do you see any differences between uh, those type of customers? I know in Sweden, uh, what the industry are saying here is that it's, it's a big difference between what a, a medium-sized or large company are asking for and what perhaps maybe a smaller two to five, ten people company are asking for. Do you yeah, see a difference is, as well? Yeah, true. That is in the, in the nature of the, of the business itself. That if you're working with big corporations, then there's, of course, uh, a lot of regulations in place and a lot of contracts to be signed, which if you're working with a ten-people company, then you might have less regulations. But that being said, the product still has to be good. It has to fulfill laws, has to entice the customer to buy it. So uh, if it comes to this bottom line, and then, then we're talking about the same thing. We want to have great products. We want to have biodegradable products. We want to, to move away from assembly line production into a circular economy. And I don't mind if this is for a multi-billion euro company or if this is a small, medium company around the corner. So whatever makes sense, 
in an economical way for both parties uh, is welcome. Yeah. What will uh, Brands Fashion's focus points on a one to two year horizon? What do they look like? In my small perfect world, um, I would think that we are getting away from the, uh, let's say, I always call it the tyranny of small decisions, that we are not depending on the individual decision of, uh, of a consumer at the checkout cashier, if he pays the upcharge for a product or not. So we need, of course, the legislative to kick in and to, to encourage also in a positive, sometimes even also in a negative way, people to look into a circular economy, because that's, to me, the ultimate goal where we need to go is that we uh, need to save on resources. Textile industry is, I think, the second largest uh, demanding uh, uh, industry for resources, and we have to uh, decrease our demand for resources because you put it in this in this uh, podcast very nicely. Uh, Mother Earth does not need us. Uh, it is healing itself, but we are taking too much of these resources out. So the perfect world would be a closed-loop uh, production of the power. Yeah. And that is, that, is, that is to come in the next five to ten years your company will then look at, at what you can do in that uh, to, to play a role in that change. We're working hard on it day to day. Rabea mentioned we have task force in place. We're working into this project and um, it's a little bit of scientific work now, um, but it will be a regular business work in the, in the near future to come. That's what I'm convinced of. Okay. And I can gather from, from what you say that, that this is also like on a personal level important for you. I think that the people that are like, like really investigating this and like really pushing for this, they are like interested about it, just not from a business perspective, but like looking around the world and trying wherever you can basically to, to do a little change. I have a very personal motivation to this. Uh, I lived uh, eight years, almost 10 years even in, in, in Asia. I lived in Bangladesh and China, so I've seen this with my own eyes. Yeah. And now I have two teenagers at home and uh, some, that would be the day when I have to report to them what I did to change all this. And then I don't want to say, well, uh, we ran an economy, we earn money and that's it. So that is too lame for me. So I believe we need to be a little bit disruptive. Of course, companies like ours need to make profit. That's what we are there for. But maybe we can just do this on a, on a much greener and more social uh, way without uh, exploiting uh, the environment too much. So you have you have seen firsthand on like what the results can be if you have a hardworking environment and if you if you go too hard on the environment. I have seen this with my own eyes, and unfortunately, I'm still seeing it with my own eyes. But I see also progress in that, so I'm um, that that is motivating me. So I believe, and I see, and I know that the change is possible. Thank you so much for having been part of this Brandfkol podcast, as we say. <laughs> Thank you. Looking forward to the result. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Bye. 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 When I woke up this morning, I knew something was wrong. It tried to defeat me, but I knew I was strong. I knew I was strong